I would like to promise and pledge to all of my voters and supporters and to all of the people of the United States that I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. Good Lord above, spare us, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode five of Politics, the world's only podcast about the U.S. presidential election coming to you live from the limits of human endurance. I am Jeb Lund, a former national affairs correspondent for Rolling Stone, and with me from San Francisco on tour is Kiwi comedian and podcast host Tim Bat. I'm here. I've got a beer. Get used to it. Pleasure <laughs> to be here, Jeb. How you doing? I'm okay. I, uh, although, you know, l- like many members of the media, I, uh, I'm periodically downsized. So um, just trying to cope with that. Uh, you know, I, I wish I could say that this was a new experience, but this is the way we live now. Folks, I mean, just as a quick public service announcement, if I may, if you like the news, consider paying for it. Yeah. Subscribe to your local papers, people. Please it's do. the smartest thing Rachel Maddow keeps saying on a consistent basis. Someone who I listen to a lot that came out like I hate it. I don't. But the smartest thing she says is she always says, buy your local newspapers, buy a subscription. Do that, people. Yeah, if for, if for nothing else than the fact that if you, you know, you buy a subscription, that allows your local paper to have somebody at City Hall or somebody in the state capitol. And as the founding fathers let us know, the states are the laboratories of democracy. Pretty much every screw-headed thing you see happen at the national level was tried somewhere else and should have been investigated beforehand. The, the late, great Molly Ivins had a had a quote about George Bush. If, uh, if the idea fucked up Texas, let's try it on the rest of the nation. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but... Now, we... Oh, do you have any other uh, program notes before we kick into it, Jeb? Jeez. Um, I mean, I wish I could say... I'm not really doing anything exciting. I know you're touring. If you don't want to plug it, I I, th- I think you should, but... Uh, hey, listen, there's everybody. A- I, the, the other podcast I do is a movie review podcast called The Worst Idea of All Time, where the movie never changes. And we watch... Uh, me and my friend Guy watch a movie for a whole year, every week. And we're uh, in San Francisco, probably today, if you're hearing this, and I've put it out on time, uh, at the Children's Creativity Museum. And we're also going to be in Portland, Oregon on Saturday night, you can get tickets from, uh, if you go to blazepizza.co.nz, I bought that domain name. It's a long story. I'm not going to get into it, but that'll give you all the ticketing information. Anyway, uh, related to that, because I've been spending a bit of time in the air, Jeb, um, I, I've, I've disconnected a little bit from the news cycle, and I've never been happier, but I'm also quite out of the loop. Um, the big ticket item, of course, is the third and final presidential debate, which happened last night. Um, I managed to get myself into such a state uh, of intoxication that I uh, injured myself severely on a stationary car and um, have almost no recollection uh, of of large parts of the evening and the debate's pretty hazy. So let's get some some hot takes from you to kick off with, Jeb, and we'll see what my recollection will let me have back in the present tense. Uh, Well, you know... the, the big things that probably everybody has noticed were, uh, were uh, Trump's refusal to endorse the outcome of the U.S. election, which uh, sent pretty much every TV analyst and your sort of leg- legacy media type who's invested in maintaining the staid uh, ceremonies of American democracy. It sent all of them to the fainting couch. And 
uh, you know, the, Charlie Pierce today in, in Esquire had a good bit explaining why that is not novel by any means. Uh, you know, the, the election of 2000 is probably the best example or the birtherism that Trump traded in for, uh, what, uh, five, six years? Uh, that, that, that alone, I mean, that, that's essentially uh, a, a backdoor way of trying to decertify an election by saying, well, sure, the results might be what they are, but the candidate doesn't count. So that's, I mean, I think that's a really eye-catching thing, but that appeals mainly to people who are, are acolytes of the process, people who want to be part of that kind of beltway uh, mind frame. And I think if you are somebody who can't decide between Trump and Hillary Clinton, I would be very surprised if that's the thing that finally does it for you. Yeah, but that shouldn't take away from the fact that it is a big fucking deal. And when you say that lots of TV personalities are getting up in arms about it, this is like not the general stuff where um, news companies can make hay out of something that if you kind of look at it in its totality and within its context, it isn't such a big deal. And it's just kind of needless pearl clutching, trying to make a headline out of moralizing. This is like a legitimate big fucking deal. As even a dude like me, an outsider from New Zealand, it seems uh, super crazy. And um, you were offhandedly mentioning before, Jeb, uh, some comments just before we started recording, which I'm, I'm sure you're going to get into more, but it's just the totality of everything that's happened has made it goddamn impossible to really properly articulate or process how fucked up each individual thing that Trump's thing, uh, tr- Trump's activities has been. And it's, it's almost like we kind of need to, well, it's a bit late now, but pick one in isolation and really get into the weeds of how fucked up it is because it's so hard to do when he's just creating them constantly. Yeah, and that I'm, I'm frightened to see. I mean, this is one of those refrains that you see from a lot of columnists and essayists, thinkers, what, what have you about this election is what's scary is not so much Trump. It, what's scary is the idea that somebody who's slick, somebody who is compassionate and relatable in that baffling way that people thought George W. Bush was relatable. Somebody like that is going to come and take this playbook and clean it up and do the the exact same thing, only uh, with, with far more panache, consistency, and ability to follow through with the killing blow after you know opening up a line of attack and wounding someone. Um, I think to a certain extent, the Bush administration kind of started this idea that if you just do something atrocious every day, Everyone will forget the day before because it will be, you know, A, we're attracted to novelty and and reporters are as much as anyone else. Uh, and B, you know, if you just get hit by enough, uh, you'll, you'll start to forget some of the other things. You might even start to be nostalgic for them. Totally. It's a, there's a real desensitizing quality to the constant barrage of them. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's weird. It's quite fascinating to watch unfold in real time. It, this genuinely feels very historic even now. And um, I get, we, we had a very historic election, obviously, in 2008 with the election of Barack Obama. And then uh, here's, here's the interesting comparison that I've been talking to a couple of people about today is that um, Mitt Romney got in so much trouble for the uh, 47% comment and the binders full of women was Romney as well, right, Jeb? Yeah. Like, incomparable to anything Trump has come out with and said. It's so 
crazy to put those two campaigns back to back and assess how out- outraged everyone was by Romney's comments and then just put them next to anything Trump said in the last 12 months. You know, I I agree with you in part there uh, because like the, the the trick that I think Trump is proving and that Romney sort of proves works is that Romney was trying so hard to be polished and on message that when he did make these mistakes, you could pounce on them. Or when he did say something outrageous, they came in contradistinction to the otherwise sort of composed nature of his campaign. But at the same time, I will say I went back, you know, I, I, over the years I lose bookmarks to things or I can't quite remember when or where something was said. And weirdly, my columns are a really good crib sheet for that. So if I can just kind of remember maybe a joke that I wrote about something, I can go back through an archive and find an old column and find some links and then go back and reeducate myself on a story. And I was doing that. Uh, with something I'd written for Gawker in 2012 about the Romney campaign. And I had forgotten half of the column. Um, and, and of course, right now, I can't remember what half of it was either. I can't remember in specific. But, you know, it was it was things where you know Romney was going out and saying, well, you know, listen, this thing on health care, we're not going to uh, we're still going to make sure that uh there's a mandate for for healthcare, And then so he would reassure the crowd, don't worry, the benefits you got under the, the ACA will you will still accrue those but you won't have right. to pay any of the penalties or something and then what would happen is one of his campaign managers would come out backstage in the spin afterward and say the candidate didn't say that in fact he didn't mean it yeah and yeah. and they did that a lot and the one that yeah. sticks in everyone's mind was eric fernstrom said after the primary and heading into the general that they would shake up the platform like an etch-a-sketch and start over but they were doing that on a daily basis. I think Romney reversed himself on abortion alone something like 37 times. I mean, there's a website. It's just called Romney on abortion uh, or some. It's got a name like that. You can just Google random keywords and you'll find it. Uh, you know, I, at the time, you know, I had no problem saying that he had run the most mendacious campaign I had ever seen. And then, of course, Trump just mendacious. Sort of, I don't even know. That's a two dollar word, Jeb. What does that mean? Means lion, man. Means liar mouth campaign. I'm going to use that. That's great. But, you know, Trump just, you know, he blew that so far out of the water. He made it look like a mere bagatelle, if you will. I'm just going to start throwing these words out there for you. Please do. (laughs) Spot the professional writer on the podcast, folks. Hint, it's not the dirty sounds Australian. But yeah, I mean, you you just play to people's exhaustion. I mean, if it's going to happen anyway, if if your message is reliant on lying, on, you know, listen, we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. We don't have a replacement, but I guarantee you it's going to provide you the exact same provisions, but without the the mandate that actually funds it to make it work. Uh, yeah. 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 So. Yeah, you're right. There was there's kind of a there was a revelatory um, component to the big scandals that happened in the Romney campaign and that you were seeing behind the curtain something outrageous that was running contrary to the man or the the image of the man that the campaign had cultivated. Whereas it's a bit different with Trump because he says this crazy bullshit at a press conference or at a presidential debate. And it's maybe not always in line with the campaign because it seems like there there are certain components of his policy that he's um, constructing very much on the fly even now. But for a lot of the stuff, it's totally in keeping with what we're used to and what our perception is of the man, which does shouldn't but does take the sting out of it somehow maybe it's the reporting of it gets less juicy and that's one of the the tricky things that's allowed this to go through as much as it has it's it's 
an interesting phenomenon to watch. Well, and I think in terms of audience retention, right, if you're a Trump fan, that sort of that renegade loose cannon stuff is what you like. So what to the professional political class seems like, uh, you know, a fatal erratic inconsistency. And I mean, it will ultimately be fatal, but not to the point where he loses that 40 percent core of the electorate. That was probably going to vote for him at the end of the primary, and is probably going to vote that that voted for him at the end of the primary, and is is almost certain to, uh, you know, vote for him in, in the general. Uh, you know, yeah. if if you like Trump and you like the fact that he's a guy who shoots from the hip and tells it like it is, then you just you can rationalize this. Oh, so he didn't memorize that, but you know, it's written down somewhere, and you always in you always. He, you can always fall back on the George W. Bush excuse, and I've heard this from Trump voters, that, look, okay, these aren't his specifics, but he's going to surround himself with experts in the same way that the, the Bush administration was sold as having the most MBAs of any presidential right. administration in history. Like, and, and Jesus that, Christ, you yeah. couldn't do that after 2008 anymore, could you? <laughs> Give it another cycle. I'm sure we'll be back <laughs> right back there. Um. What we should do now is take a quick breather before we get into a little more of the specifics of the debate itself last night. So uh, I'm going to attempt to grab a glass of water and take the edge off this persistent bloody hangover, and we'll be right back. Michelle Obama gives a speech, and everyone loves it. It's fantastic. My wife, Melania, gives the exact same speech. And people get on her case. And you're back on Politics, a podcast that explores what happens when you get a literary giant of the online world, <laughs> Rolling Stone. Uh, who, give me some other credits, Jeb. My mind is struggling. Esquire, GQ, The Guardian. You just mentioned Gorka. Add that to the list. Uh, coming up against a man who lives in the bottom of the earth, Middle Earth, trying to comment on the US presidential election together. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am Tim Bat. This is the second part. Um, and I want to ask you, Jeb, uh, because as I mentioned before, my memory is a little hazy of the debate last night. I would specifically like to ask you, what is something that Hillary Clinton did poorly? Because um, as fair as it may be that we dump on Trump 24-7, I, I just have an absolute longing uh, for the other side to, to be represented on here. So give me something that you felt Hillary Clinton did poorly. Uh, her comments on the Heller decision, which was a uh, firearms, DC versus Heller, I think, uh, is the, the actual name of the case, uh, was such a muddle that I wasn't really sure what she was arguing. And that doesn't help because, like a lot of people, I don't remember the specifics of a lot of uh, Supreme Court cases outside of the ones that we were required to memorize in, in high school, Marbury versus Madison, Dred Scott, etc., so that in in that's a problem for her. Well, I mean, it's it, was that the just to catch me up. Was that the Supreme Court decision that gun manufacturers can't be sued, or is it a different one? Okay, so DC versus Heller is basically about uh, uh, self defense rights and w within the District of Columbia. And Antonin Scalia wrote the majority opinion, and it kind of recasts our understanding of how the founding fathers intended. The, uh, the Second Amendment to be read, and that's sort of screwed up scholarship for people who are used to dropping certain links into their articles to say, well, this is the this is the gun debate as it stands today. And right. Clinton, Clinton didn't articulate really 
sufficiently where she's coming out of that. Now, that might have been intentional because a whole bunch of the audience doesn't want to hear anything about any legislation pertaining to gun control. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, maybe it serves her a little bit to muddy it there. But if she's trying to get a clear message out of it, she's going to have to refine that in the coming days. So that was the, the first one that kind of popped out was, listen, I kind of know, you know, I'm not a Supreme Court historian. And I'm, you know, I'm not a jurist. And my understanding of Heller is is sort of that ad hoc understanding that you get from reading a lot of blogs about it. Uh, But I couldn't sort of wend my way through her intent. So, you know, that that's step one to to worry about. And then the, the other major one that popped out at me was Trump brought up WikiLeaks again. And Clinton immediately tacked to, well, we know that the Russian government, 17 American intelligence agencies have said the Russian government is behind these hacks that of, of her campaign, uh, her campaign's private computers and, and email accounts and what have you, and is fun, funneling them to WikiLeaks. And that does help to defang some of what you're hearing about, because, again, this is sort of theft of private material, which reveals mm-hmm. that there's a difference between public Hillary and private Hillary, which her critics have maintained all along, and which I think anybody who knows anyone who, who has a is a public figure just admits that it is sort of the default. But uh, voters won't understand that, um, or, or voters might balk at that. Uh, but she, you know... Th- th- this could be managed differently, but she she immediately tacked to spooky old Russia, and yeah, that yeah. will that will work for people. Uh, we know that that worked for people because McCarthyism worked for people, and this is a really yeah. really dangerous road for the Democrats to go down, because if they go ahead and give the leftist rubber stamp of approval to demonizing political actions and political candidates and and uh, political figures by their ties to Russia or or their programs or comments giving aid and comfort to Russia, if we start engaging in this sort of edging up toward accusations of treason or treason speak, right? Uh, If if one party does that, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And unfortunately, the Republican Party is much better at this than the Democratic Party is. What what, what is this specifically? Red red baiting. In this case, I mean, they're not red anymore, but, uh, uh, you know, just... Basically making, uh, you know, we all laughed at, I mean, in 2008, we were calling Sarah Palin a joke because she could see Putin from her house, right? Yeah. And now that's basically the centerpiece of the Clinton campaign's response to anything about WikiLeaks. I yeah, can see Putin. And there's, also, there's also like a, a point that you don't need to have any nuanced political knowledge or context or history of to get as well, which is the simple fact that by constantly immediately attacking Russia every time these things are talked about, you're ignoring the fact that they're still true. <laughs> it's like, sure, that was the vehicle, granted, but it doesn't change the fact that the content of John Podesta's emails, which as far as everyone seems to be talking on both sides, it doesn't look like anything that's come out has been doctored in any way. Like these are real legitimate sources of information. And beyond, you're right, the very... Uh, clear um, danger of going down that road of um, demonizing whistleblowers, uh, which has been happening really under the Obama administration anyway, um, but furthering that, especially on the Democratic side, so that there's there's really no one um, against just throwing them in jail and locking, locking them away and throwing away the key. It does ignore the fact that we've still got the thing, the result, the fruits of that action at the end of it. And is it, I mean, what's your take on this, Jeb? Do you think it's because you're not allowed to talk about 
stuff like that because it's like it acknowledges something that hasn't been confirmed or is it because most of it is confidential so there's just no good conversation you can have about material like that or what like what's what's the deal well i mean first of all i think you're right on about it not being a persuasive argument i mean it's kind of like saying listen i mean i admit that i ran over a guy with my car but afterward my car was stolen you know that there you go <laughs> you know but ultimately i mean most of what's been released is nothing i mean if you I mean, it's something in that it exists and it's about events, right? But you have, yeah. you have people who are, I mean, it's, it's emails about meetings and people who are getting and, bitchy with each other and you find out yeah. that, yeah, sure, Neera Tandon does not like David Brock. Well, fuck, I mean, do you like everyone you work with? Now, imagine your organization is, uh, you know, hundreds of people large and may have the fate of the free world hanging on its actions, Right. It's going to be very tense. You don't have to like everyone because people are ostensibly being hired for being effective. So you're going to talk shit and you're going to talk shit about your opponent. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Look, and who gives a fuck about that specifically? The, I've been following the, um, the Donald subreddit for like 18 months now. And uh, it God, has morphed why? into quite a different thing than it used. No, well, listen, it's important to not just, I'm very against the idea of echo chambers Um and I always like to try and expose myself to as many different points of view as possible, no matter how kind of wacky or crazy they look from the outside. And the the Donald subreddit, I've talked about this with some other people. I don't know if I'm correct on this, but my read when it started is it was satirical. Or at the very least, it was supporters who had an incredible amount of humor and um, self-awareness about the, the craziness of it. And slowly over time, the moderators have changed hands into people who are more linked to the actual campaign and more earnest about it. And now it's um, essentially it's sort of final transformation, which it's been in for the last, I don't know, six or nine months. It's just a Hillary Clinton attack machine. Um, but it's it, it, the biggest thing that I've seen come out of those Podesta emails uh, was the line. Oh, well, first of all, the um, Goldman Sachs speeches, which I had kind of a cursory look over and um, tried to sort of get a bit of a view online just from headlines about um, if there was anything super juicy in there. It seems not much. And the other one it, headline it seems that like, has stuck in. I'm sorry. It seems like exactly what Bernie Sanders said it, they probably contained, right? So that attack has been yeah. issued and absorbed. And so we just got confirmation that it was, you know, the, the attack was aimed correctly. It was so weird that she didn't release them before, though. Yeah. Like, considering yeah. how little ammunition, I, that's my take on it anyway. There didn't seem to be any smoking gun there. But the other only headline that has stuck in my memory of the, um, you know, millions of man hours that I'm sure the Donald has spent pouring over these um, leaks that are on WikiLeaks from Podesta's emails uh, was that comment that she made, which is that it's important to have a, a public position and a private position, which there was part of one of the speeches, right? That's where that was from. I, uh, I think it was from one of the Goldman Sachs speeches yeah, I, I, um, when she was talking about getting uh, legislation through and kind of the process of that. And I think if anyone was being realistic about how politics works and then you see these Podesta emails like 
it's way more boring than I would have even thought generally. I was hoping it was going to be real juicy, you know, just <laughs> by a matter of having an interest in American politics. You, everyone wanted to think that there would be some revelation in there which proves that she's a reptilian person who's hooked up to the blood of babies at night to fuel herself. Uh, the, there was, the Peter Thiel diet. There didn't really seem to be anything in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, true. Shit. I forget that is starting to be a real thing. Anyway, and, and I mean, it's so unsurprising. I mean, this woman was the chief diplomat of the United States. Diplomacy is is so dependent on back channel things to function. I mean, if nothing else, it indicates that she is in a mindset fresh off of the most important job she'd had to date. You know, to say nothing of, of the efficacy of talking privately with your colleagues in, uh, you know, adjacent Senate chambers, which is, you know, as a practice that dates back to the moment the Senate started, right? Yeah. I mean, she's, this is a woman who, who has absorbed the, the, uh, you know, just the, the, the best practices of her job, which is that you have to say that you're trying to seek things in, in public because that's what you want people to aspire to. I mean, and ideally mm-hmm. because you're using the, the bully pulpit to get people to continue to push for those things so that you don't stop at a compromise. I mean, yeah, you disappoint them, because you only meet their expectations halfway, but you hope that they're energized to still ultimately pursue your final goal. I mean, that's generally how this works. But, uh, you know... The, the, it's a long and winding road to get there. Yeah, and, and, and some of those compromises are ugly. I mean, if, mm. if you studied the Yalta Conference, if you are into World War II, I mean, if you're looking at people dividing Europe and going, well, you can have this bit and you can have this bit. I mean, that's incredibly gross and imperialistic. Yeah. And, and surely led to the loss of millions of lives, <laughs> which is probably not the best ex- analogy to go to at this moment. But you know, on a small, significantly less murderous scale, you do have to start moving demographics and impacts around. And some of them are going to be negative. And at some point, you have to sit and look somebody in the eye and say, this is the suffering that I can live with because, it, because if we do this, it will mitigate this other suffering I cannot. Yeah, I, like it's it's the art of compromise. It's yeah. like the definition of politics, and by you know seeing a little bit of that price, it's it, and she even said it herself, it's the sausage factory. That was how she put it. It's pretty apt. No one wants to see the sausage getting made. Horrible process. You just want the hot dog at the end. Hillary Clinton is the hot dog. <laughs> I, Hillary, this metaphor's gone terribly wrong. Hillary Clinton is a sandwich. I agree. Um, no, it's, you know, I, I, I realize I sound like a Hillary Clinton stan right now, and I'm not. It's just I find it flabbergasting how stupid some of these attacks are because it's sort of like willfully, it, it willfully ignores pretty much legislative history to be appalled yeah. by that. So Let's take a, a quick breather again, Jeb, and uh, we'll be back in just one moment. Okay. To look to the future, the depressing dark horizon of the future. Now... Some of my critics, and I hear that too. Yeah. They think I only say what people want to hear. Well, tonight that is true. And here's exactly what you want to hear. This election will be over very, very soon. And welcome to part three of Politics, a podcast about the depressing possible future of America and the rest of us for living in the world. You're back with Jeb Lund and myself, Tim Bat. Jeb, I'm, I'm going to throw the floor to you. What's important? What do we need to nail? I, I mean, to me, like, 
what's amazing is, and, and this is just something we've kind of been leading up to this whole uh, episode is, is just how easily we forget all these things and how quickly we're willing to take, uh, you know, to, to quote something that, to quote a reference Donald Trump likes, we're willing to draw a red line and then let uh, our domestic, uh, you know, aggressors cross it and then say, okay, well, now the line's over here. And right, right. You know, the, 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 to get back to the thing about not uh, in, endorsing the outcome of the election, not accepting that, um, you know, there are a lot of examples in American history of why this is not even that radical, right? Um, the first example would be what everyone in the South did following Abraham Lincoln being elected. Um, you know, about 600,000 dead later, I think that's probably a little bit bigger than a guy who just can't stop lying, deciding that an election doesn't count. Uh, and then there's the matter of, I mean, the Republicans nursed resentment over JFK's win in 1960 forever. The whole thing about inner cities, uh, you know, inner city democratic political machines using minorities to win, uh, that dates back to uh, the Richard Daley and the democratic machine in Chicago. Of course, that also dates back to the Irish in New York in the 19th century. And you can, you can tie that to the Know Nothing Party and Anyway, to be um, fair, didn't JFK also use dead people though as well? Oh no, I mean like they did steal that, but like <laughs> yeah, uh, like, let's not know, gloss over a, a little bit of election fraud as well. But uh, yeah, go on. Yeah, but election fraud is deliciously universal, um, and you know you've got the 2000 recount where you had a, a Brooks Brothers riot that was entirely manufactured. Um, you had, uh, and you can get into a whole argument about what the Supreme Court is doing deciding the outcome of the election. Uh, in 2000, uh, again, in 2008, you have the birtherism and then you had plenty, you had the, the reason why Fox news went balls to the wall over three dudes from the new black Panther party standing on a corner in Philly was because they wanted to nurse the idea that blacks and blacks in the inner city were intimidating voters away from white voters away from the polls so that Obama could win. Um, I mean, I, I, at this point, I can't remember what the 2012 one, ones were. But I mean, Trump, Trump isn't even doing something novel for this decade or the, at least the last 10 years, right? So to me, it's like, let's take a step back and see if we're going to be out, that outraged about that. What happened to our previous outrage? And our previous outrage was the fact that Donald Trump might have sexually assaulted half a dozen women, if not more. And we yeah. thought that was going to end the election. And it didn't even end, you know, it. it it wasn't good for more than three days. You know, what should have been a disqualifying issue immediately. We couldn't get, you know, 72 hours later, we moved on in, in part because of, I think, the forced objectivity of the mainstream press, because you get something else out of WikiLeaks. And suddenly it's like, well, yeah. on, on the one hand, this guy finger bangs women without their consent pretty much wherever he yeah. goes. And then on the other hand, somebody said something in private to a work colleague that they didn't say in public to everyone else, which like no shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the fact that we're willing to put these things on equal planes and, and give them equal legitimacy when one is, you know, when one is just basically message management and the other one is fucking assault. And the most awful kind of abuse of power as well of entitlement and position and just like i think i was listening to the slight political gab fest where they were um having this conversation around if if this is 
how he has treated getting the amount of power that's afforded to someone who's very wealthy. What the fuck is he going to do? How does that transmute and amplify when you give him the keys to the White House? Like, what does the result of that abuse of power look like for all of us? Well, I mean, you know, he, he certainly seems to have no love for journalists or the First Amendment. And, you know, if, if he treats women, he verbally treats women like meat. It turns out he apparently does it with his hands as well. He verbally treats journalists like criminals. I don't know what he's going to do with his hands when they're on the levers of power. Uh, yeah. And this is where the um, Hitler talk gets a little less outrageous. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, because he kind of has talked about um, locking up journalists, which, you know, it's interesting. This is something that I think uh, Clinton... Um, administration would probably do but really try to hide because they understand how shady it is but i don't think they would have such a hard time um uh, prosecuting whistleblowers not not imprisoning them um outright like trump seems to suggest that he can just sort of be judge jury and executioner but there's nothing that i've seen which um would suggest to me that clinton would take what the obama administration has been doing which is um afford no protection or leniency to whistleblowers and, and really amp that up. But at least there's an acknowledgement by the left that that is something you do and not talk loudly about because people aren't fans of it because it's good for you, but it's deeply unpopular and there are good reasons for that. Whereas Trump seems to want to do it and talks about it like it's a really good thing to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the one error that Trump is making is that at least when Obama, you know, when the Obama administration goes after whistleblowers and in a, in a historical record amount, they're doing it under the cover of the Espionage Act. Right. So at least it's a law. Right. And that yes. gives legitimacy to Obama and, and, you know, future President Clinton, most likely to go after whistleblowers, but at least that's a law. If you're a grassroots yep. organization, you can campaign to repeal that. You can hold that up as an act of injustice by the government. I don't know how you campaign to repeal Donald Trump being dangerously unstable. That's a character yeah. issue. I mean, you, you essentially have to wait until he commits high crimes and misdemeanors and then hope that a Republican dominated house votes to impeach him and the Senate convicts him. That a Republican-dominated House would do that. Is that realistic? No. Because, I mean, uh, two questions. Number one, what do you think the odds are that the Democrats can take the House off the effect down ticket that all of this is having? And number two, and this is more of a thought experiment than anything else, Trump gets in. Like, how, how far is Paul Ryan prepared to string everyone along and just eat all of the shit that he will have to to get things like Supreme Court um, justices that are going to be favorable to the Republicans? Well, to answer the first one, I, I think it's really slim. Uh, there was a hope about a month ago that Trump was becoming so erratic that it was going to depress his numbers enough, and it doesn't look like the the requisite depression of those numbers is going to happen. Um and then, you know, there's the the factor that most of these House seats have been so gerrymandered that you really don't have enough of independent and democratic voters who can reverse this outcome in most of them. I think, you know, I think, you know, even if thing, everything breaks their way, they're probably still going to be, I think the number I heard was like 12 seats short. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure that there are that many people who want to cross the aisle as a protest against president Trump. 
And then uh, in terms in, in terms of the second, uh, you know, Paul Ryan, you know, th- this is, I mean, what a gutless fuck. I mean, really. Uh, yeah, like. See, we've got different takes on Paul Ryan because I actually am, uh, and I will always uh, uh, concede to your opinion on these sorts of things, Jeb, because you uh, a lot more knowledgeable than I. But my take from what I've seen of him and his comments in the campaign for most of the time, up until quite recently, I think the sexual assault um, uh, episode has changed my opinion of the man. But up until then, I thought Paul Ryan was doing a pretty good job of walking this tightrope of... Um, not throwing anything more than the absolute requisite amount of support behind Trump, that he he certainly wasn't celebrating him as a candidate or as a representative of the party, because he's not, Um, but he also was doing enough to not damage the campaign to an extent that it would splash back onto other Republicans. Yeah, well, I mean, if I may quote Han Solo here, yeah, he's a real hero. I mean, <laughs> and fair enough, Jeb. I'm just trying to <laughs> trying to think from the other side every once in a while, but um, that's probably warranted. All that snark is probably due. I, you know, I just at what point are you parsing your sentence to not endorse sexual assault, but to say, listen, you know, th- this guy who may have treated women like that, we do want him appointing Supreme Court justices to rule on women's bodies. And look, once again, I think that uh, he he kind of had me. I, I was clinging on um, just in terms of his decision-making abilities and the way he was communicating, Paul Ryan I'm talking about, up until the sexual assault, assault stuff. I mean, if we're talking about red lines, I think that all bets are off now, but I would have said universally that everyone could agree that that should be one. Yeah, but I mean, and, and sort of get back to how we started this this segment, right? Even before the uh, the sexual assault thing. Before that, you had, he wanted to violate the First Amendment and start making laws, uh, singling out Muslims within the United States for entry to the United States. Even, you know, he Mm. at one point was saying that if you are Muslim and you leave the United States, you cannot re-enter it. And the litmus test for your being barred from re-entry was your religion. And I mean, it's the first fucking amendment. You don't have to read very far through the Bill of Rights to get to it. And before that, I mean, that, that should have been enough, right? And then before that, it was, you know, th- th- he comes down the escalator on the day he announces his candidacy and then immediately depicts M- Mexicans entering this country as rapists and murderers and then goes on to demonize the ones in this country. And I mean, literally the moment his campaign started, it should have ceased by rights. And I, it's just a testament to the fact that there are so many people in this country who have been instructed that the Democratic candidate, whomever that might be and whatever they might be advocating, is an existential threat to their way of life. That you're yeah. willing to tolerate somebody whose campaign launch is literally an offense. <laughs> Succinctly put, it's true. Um, there was a thought that I've had recently is, you know how we've kind of got this glorious vision of an alien coming to Earth and uh, like a warring race of aliens and that's going to unite the whole planet a la Independence Day? Mm-hmm. What if Trump was supposed to be that? Like, he's supposed to be a so universally deplorable figure that he was supposed to be the thing that united this heavily divided country of America and yet because the system is so fucked he's still going to wind up with 40 plus percent of the popular vote. Yeah, oh man. I, I thought you were going to do the old joke about like what if aliens came down to the planet and saw how we 
how we interact with dogs and concluded that they were actually the ruling species? <laughs> no. Like, um, they literally tow us around by a rope, and then we take them, and we give them food and beds, and, you know, we devote our lives to their comfort, despite the fact that in the most case in Western, or at least, let's say, like, developed nations, they provide no real utility. I mean, that's kind of fucked right there. I you see, really- Jeb, you, you're a political writer who is so fed up with this election cycle that even on your own political podcast you have to escape the subject matter for a brief moment no i mean Um, i mean look it's like we've gone into this so many times i mean the, the creation of a parallel media structure for conservatism that basically rewrote the history of the united states rewrote how math and economics work rewrote how natural sciences work they create uh you know they've created a a a dedicated segment of the electorate ready to be exploited by somebody like Trump who has the one feature the apex feature for the Republican Party and and this is an analogy I've made before it's a callback to a really great Mr. Show sketch uh, called Worthington's Law and Worthington's Law is defined as more money equals better than so like in in the sketch you know somebody says like Mother Teresa well she says we should do that fuck that how much does she make Right. And Donald Trump is awesome. Yeah. Donald Trump is a billionaire. And we've been the Republican Party has taught its base. Well, people who make more money than you are smarter than you. It doesn't matter how they made their money. Which is the first big lie in that statement. The second one is that Trump's a billionaire. But the the point holds. Yeah. I mean, philosophy holds. It it doesn't. You know, you can point out like you can point out the the, the amount of money that he was loaned by his father. If he had invested it in the S&P 500 and only drawn out some of the interest that he earned and just continually reinvested it over the same duration from that loan to the present day, his net worth by just investing in the S&P 500, like an index fund, I think that would uh, taken out of that I, was the analogy, right? Allegedly, he would have the exact same amount of money he has now and none of the bankruptcies, right? So yeah. <laughs> this is what you get with seed money and just waiting, right? And somehow yes, that is. is transferred into who, him being a Superman that can you know, that, that can hack the, the economy and hack the American government and deliver us the, the same sort of successes that made the Atlantic City waterfront what it is today. I couldn't agree more. And uh, you're getting so worked up at this late hour of the evening. <laughs> I'm going to suggest I'm, I, I need to go. I need to, I'm, I'm going to go see some stand up comedy now. I think you should go and have a hot cup of cocoa, get yourself ready for bed and do some exhaling but i do want to give a shout out to a movie that i watched um i downloaded it so i could watch it on the plane uh which is hyper normalization which um is i forget the gentleman's name from bbc who put it together but he's a journalist who's been doing sort of societal commentary for decades and the movie is uh, the documentary is very big it's two hours and 40 minutes the subject matter is sprawling but they've got some very nice stuff about trump in there and how he's mirroring a lot of um, how Putin has approached politics and what he's done to the political sphere in um, in Russia. Uh, hypernormalization is the name of the doco. And if you let's just say if you look for it, you will probably find it online. Okay, and and I would just like to recommend again. Uh, I've done this in other platforms. If you would also like to watch a movie, you don't have to download it. It's available on YouTube. It's called Jim Carter. It stars American gymnast Kurt Thomas and. It involves the discipline and timing of gymnastics with the explosive power of karate. Dang. Yes, please. That sounds awesome. (laughs) All right. 
Right. We're going to try and get another one of these episodes up as quickly as we can. Excuse the delays while I'm um, in America and traveling around and whatnot. Jeb, always a pleasure. Uh, likewise. Thank you. Now, look, I have deep respect for people like Kellyanne Conway. She's working day and night for Donald. And because she's a contractor, he's probably not even going to pay her. <clears throat> but I think the good news is that debates finally allowed Republicans to unite around their candidate. The bad news is it's Mike Pence. 